but I did say that I would record the audio and some people can't make it to all the sessions as well. Um, so they can um, um, check the audio as well. Okay, so I'm now recording audio. Um, so 1707 is a really crucial time um, in world history. And this is the year in which the British nation state or the British state is established. And one of the reasons the, the British state is established and the Scottish elites agree to uh, be subsumed into this new political entity, this new jurisdiction um, called Britain, um, and, you know, um, and become subsumed under the, 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 the English aristocracy and the English monarchy and the English government, um, is partly, of course, because of English aggression against the Scots, but it's also because Scotland was also engaging in European competitive colonization. It had Nova Scotia, um, bits of what is now Virginia, um, and an attempt to colonize uh, Central America in, in an area which is now Panama. But it wasn't really doing very well. It wasn't really able to compete effectively with the big players, you know, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Dutch, the French, or even the English. And so by becoming part of this new entity, um, England, um, sorry, um, this new political entity, Britain, um, Scotland, England and Wales could, um, I guess, pool their re collective resources and be a far more better competitor in European competitive colonisation. And of course, we know that this is certainly the case because Britain went on to win European competitive colonization. It went on to have the largest empire of all of the European nations, the most profitable empire of all the European nations, the most militaristically powerful of all the uh, European imperial nations, and crucially as well, the most culturally and ideologically influential of all of these empires as well. Um, we can think of many examples of that. So the fact that English is the global language is possibly one of those uh, most uh, vivid legacies. But so, so bearing that in mind, empire is not simply a kind of militaristic and economic project, um, you know, for, for extracting profit and resources and for um, imposing power and control over other populations in the world. It's also an ideological and cultural project as well. Because of course, at the same time in the 1700s, we're seeing the emergence of ideas around the Enlightenment, right? So the, um, the, 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 what we consider today to be the foundations of democracy, right? The idea of the rule of law, right? The rule of law is um, the, uh, the idea that people in positions of power and government, right? The, the king or the monarch, um, uh, the head, head of state have to abide by the laws of the land, right? They can't just do whatever it is they please. They can should be held to account and limit, their power should be limited by the laws that exist. Um, the idea of um, a fair trial and a, and a judge and all of these types of things, right? So these kind of foundational principles of democracy, these enlightenment ideas um, begin to become popular in Europe and they are how Europe, particularly Britain, but other countries as well, seek to um, identify themselves as not simply an economic leader of, of the world and, in a, and a, um, not simply a militaristic leader of the world, but also a moral and intellectual leader of the world as well. But there's a problem. So does that make sense? Does anyone have any questions? Empire is this big project. People want to make money and get resources, yes. People want to have a big military and control large populations across the world, yes. But there's, it's also an intellectual and cultural and um, project as well, in which the ideas um, which emerge from Europe, or Europe likes to say that emerged from Europe, um, 
spread across the world as well. So these, so Europe wants to be the moral leader of the world and the intellectual leader of the world, as well as the militaristic and economic leaders as well. But there's a problem. There's a real, there's a real problem arising um, for Europe, particularly Britain at this time. Because while the ideals of the Enlightenment, you know, individual freedoms and liberties and rights, and justice and the rule of law, all of these things, this is, these are the principles which Britain is using to identify itself. While at the very same time, it's engaging in the exterminate. Oh, Samina, have you got a question? Go ahead. Um, so, you know, when you were saying that the empire, in the sense, was not just an economic uh, military leader, but they're also aspiring to this intellectual leader yeah. but isn't that all part of the world domination thing was that a conscious thing uh, and and did they really see it as consciously as thinking as it as an ideological leader or that or should i just wait to see it no no, no they were they were very um if you if yeah. like um if you go back and read the literature of these enlightenment thinkers they considered youth britain in the context of britain let's let's leave it to britain because we're talking yeah. about britain they considered britain to be the moral leader of the world and right. when we look later we'll see that britain considered its empire to be more enlightened more civil more liberal um more liberatory for its colonized subjects than the crass um violence of the french or the portuguese or the right. spanish certainly the germans they're not doing empire properly we have a moral empire they have a crass violence um uh, dishonorable empire. Um, uh, so there's this contradiction, right? There's this fundamental contradiction um, arising because whilst Britain considers itself to be the moral and intellectual leader of the world, spreading around the world these civil liberties and ideas and of, of justice and rights and freedom, etc., it's also, of course, engaging in the extermination of the indigenous peoples of uh, North America and the Caribbean. It's also becoming the largest slave trading nation in human history. It's colonization, colonizing the lion's share of the African continents, um, uh, South Asia, parts of Southeast Asia, and of course also engaging in the extermination of the indigenous peoples of Australia and New Zealand. So there is this real contradiction here, right, between what Britain uh, considers to be um, uh, its moral and intellectual uh, foundations and the material reality of becoming, of building the most profitable, militaristically powerful empire the world had ever known, right? Uh, because you have to do a lot of quite horrible things to people's freedoms and liberties in order to get all of that profit and power, right? And the way in which this contradiction is reconciled between what it considers to be, you know, the ideas that it identifies itself with and the material reality of that empire, the way in which that contradiction is reconciled is through race. Race is the way in which Britain can simultaneously identify itself as being, I guess today that it would use the language of tolerance, right? Um, uh, this place of this, this bastion of liberty and freedom and rights and justice and the foundations of modern democracy while simultaneously engaging in genocide, mass enslavement and uh, the colonization, therefore the stripping of freedoms and rights from millions of people across, across the planet. Any, does that make sense? Making sense. So, so race, so race does this really crucial work. This really crucial work for rationalizing and justifying empire. So you can simultaneously do things that are extremely immoral whilst also being moral, right? And the reason they are able to do that is because 
what race and this will go this will feed onto the next slide where i go on to define race that what race does it, it puts human beings into a hierarchy where for one reason or another some human beings or maybe sub sub people yeah ideas of charles darwin yep certainly links to that and if people want to read more about that i recommend i can recommend some readings on racial science but unfortunately i don't have time to go into it um, um because race puts people into a hierarchy, it says that some people are not worthy of certain rights and freedoms or not don't have the ability to really enjoy and really um, um, don't, don't have the intellectual and moral capacity to be able to participate in democracy um, or, um, or these kind of civil liberties and freedoms that you might associate with uh, the Enlightenment. Um, can, we, can I just ask you a question? Can we just- Of course, um, go ahead. Just uh, slow down just a sec, just because yeah. um, I'm just trying to follow it. So what I always thought, right, is I thought that, like, you know, the settlers had gone over to the US, they'd killed everyone, they had huge amounts of, of land, they wanted to exploit this land for capitalist reasons. They originally brought indentured white working class people over, they kept rising up and trying to take over. So they thought, listen, we really need to do something about this. And then they shipped 12 million or 20 million Africans over in or, and, and in order to justify their ill treatment, they created race science and categorized people so that, you know, so that they could say they're more animal-like, right? And then they could justify it. Is that different to what you're saying? Or is that kind of, where's the difference? So I would say that, I would say there's not one story for the creation of race, but what I would say is that um, race was probably created, we should understand race has been created partly to rationalize the transatlantic slave trade, but also to rationalize the extermination of the indigenous peoples of, of the Americas. Right? And th these things kind of happen simultaneously. And it's, and it's in these two moments that also Europe begins to identify as white, right? Um, in, in, to, in order to um, uh, differentiate itself from the, the people racialized as Negro on the African continent and racialized as Indian, not in India, but in the Americas. Right? Um, and, and, and so these are the racial categories that were created, right? And people racialized um, on, the, on the African continent were racialized in a way that um, meant that they could be used for labor. Um, and the people on, um, in, the, in the Americas were, were racialized as basically either not existing or, or, or being effectively animals, um, which, needs, which, which a higher human being needed, needed to be, needs to replace them in order for the land and resources of, of this uh, newly discovered um, continent to be effectively um, uh, uh, used um, by the ex expanding European capitalism. Does that kind of make sense? But but there are many stories, right? Um, and people like Cedric Robinson is probably, a, I really recommend people reading his um, Black Marxism, where he talks about how actually, if we think about race, um, race actually began before colonization with the racialization of Jewish people in Europe um, and Slavic people in Europe. Um, and it, but it only really took on this kind of global role that we know today through colonization. Make, making sense. I, I haven't even defined race and racism yet, so hopefully it will make a bit more sense once I define race and racism, which is slide uh, number three. Um, so, um, so really crucial um, for the purposes of this short course, there are, as I said, many, many definitions of race and racism, and I'm sure I could talk you all under the table and to death um, uh, with the many definitions and how they're contested. But for, for the purposes of this short course, um, what I would say is that 
I'll begin with what race I think is not. Um, oh, no, sir, go ahead. You've, you've heard these definitions before, no, sir. It was in the last- Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I just wanted to um, confirm something because I've been reading through my um, physics again and I did speak a lot about scientific racism and social Taoism. The question I wanted to ask was because I know there was a cost of ham and how that was used to justify um, um, slavery um, around the 1500s. But I just wanted to ask, when did scientific um, racism come into the uh, mix? When did uh, enlightenment um, intellectual bring in scientific racism to further justify um, slavery and colonialism? Of course, was this before the cost of ham or during the cost of ham or even for later? Right, great question. So I would say that there are kind of three broad periods in which racism um, is um, rationalized in different ways. The early periods from, you know, 1498, you know, um, and, and uh, Christopher Columbus and this period, religion was the main mode in which racism was rationalized or justified, right? These non-Christian peoples, they're savages, and um, so on and so forth. And it's and it's religion was often the way in which um, uh, this these um, the this racial hierarchy was rationalized or justified. In the mid 1900s, sorry, mid 19th century, I should say, sorry, mid 1800s is when we begin to see ideas of science replace these religious justifications. Um, and of course, this becomes this kind of crescendos with the coining of the term eugenics by a man called Sir Francis Galton um, at the University of London um, in the late 19th century. Um, and uh, so racial science is the way in which racism is kind of rationalized and justified. Um, but of course, that, you know, uh, eugenics kind of gets a bit of a bad name after World War Two, um, and Britain tries to distance itself from it um, after the Nazi Holocaust. And of course, today, post World War Two, culture is often the way in which we hear ra racism uh, rationalized or justified about people having a, a deficit or anti-intellectual or criminal culture, whether that be so-called Muslim culture or so-called black culture or these other kind of um, cultural formations. And this is the way in which we see it uh, justified. Um, but again, if you remind me, I can put some readings um, on scientific racism in, into, the, into our little Dropbox um, thing if people want to learn more. And there's lots of great documentaries and films and things like that too. Um, as well. There's a really great three hour, um, if you can handle it, um, documentary called Racism, colon, A History, um, which is on um, iPlayer, I mean, on, on YouTube. It was made by the BBC, I think, in around 2004. Um, and yeah, it's really brilliant. Definitely worth watching. Okay. Um, let's define race and racism, shall we? Um, <laughs> so um, let's begin by what, I, for our purposes, race is not. So for me, for our purposes, race is not simply about identity, right? Um, race isn't simply something people choose to be, right? Um, so, I, you know, you can choose to be, I don't know, um, uh, you can choose to identify in certain ways, um, but race is, I I'm going to argue that race is, is so far more than simply an identity. It's certainly far more than cultural difference. Um, uh, and it's not about in or out groups, which is something Sorry if there are any psychologists here, but it's something some psychologists like to say that race is this kind of natural thing that um, human beings are kind of um, uh, uh, our group are a group species, and they just don't like people from a different group to them. And race is one of those kind of groups. I disagree with that. Um, and it's certainly not about biology. Um, race is not something which is natural and biological. Um, uh, it is what we call a social construct, or more accurately, a colonial construct. 
construct something that's, that's been invented for social, economic and political purposes, rather than something which is um, simply um, scientific. Um, this might be confusing, right, because it's, you might be thinking, well, Adam, of course, it, race is scientific, because if two black people have a child, it's going to be black. And if two white people have a child, it's going to be white. So, you know, how can race not be scientific? But what I would say is that, so, so this is the example I often use for my students. Let's, um, let's, 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 uh, let's take Barack Obama, for instance. Let's imagine Barack Obama, he's not former US president, he's just a Joe Bloggs guy living in America, right? Barack Obama. In the United States, um, Barack Obama is, would be racialized as African-American, right? He was the first African-American president, but he's not the president, he's just a normal guy working in Burger King or something. So he's African-American. But when Barack Obama goes to Brazil, um, he's not Afro-Brazilian. Um, he will be one of the 60 or 70 derivations of brown that exist within Brazil. And if he were to go to um, Jamaica, he would be racialized as a red-skinned man, as a red man. Um, and if he were to go to South Africa, he'd probably be racialized as a colored. Um, right? So they have kind of four or five categories in, in South Africa. There's black, there's Indian, there's white, and there's kind of colored peoples. And if he were to go to Kenya, where his father is from, he would likely be racialized as a Mzungu, um, which is loosely interpreted as outsider, but is often attributed to, to white people or people racialized as white. And he would enjoy many of the same white privileges that somebody with two white parents would enjoy. And if he would to come to Britain, um, he would uh, often be racialized as this thing we have in Britain called mixed race, right? Um, uh, as if some people are mixed and there are other people who are just racially pure. I mean, anyway, but let's not get into that. Um, so what does that tell us? What it doesn't tell, what it tells us, of course, is that Barack Obama's biology doesn't change when he goes from Chicago to Brazil, to South Africa, to Kenya, to Britain. But the way in which race has been socially constructed or more accurately, colonially constructed, changes in each of these different social or geographical contexts. And so that's how uh, that's one of the ways in which we have to understand race as being socially or colonially constructed. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, any questions? No? Okay, great. So race is not science. Race is not simply about in or out groups, right? It's not natural. Um, it's not simply about identity or culture. Okay, so I've got, I think, three, four definitions here. Um, so I would say that race is a system of power. Um, some people might say mode of governance. That's a little bit, um, uh, so, yeah, but a system of power, right? So it's more than an ideology. It's a system of power, which is used to categorize different people into different, into different categories, right? Divide people into different categories in a hierarchical way, right? Um, um, in order to discipline them differently, exploit them differently, and impose violence upon them differently as well. Um, perhaps one of the most vivid examples of this could be the British in the Caribbean in the 19th century, right, where some people would be racialized as Negro, we'd call them black today, right, but in the 19th century they're racialized as Negro, and they would be enslaved labor. And there will be other labor that is racialized as cooling, right, but today we would obviously refer to them as South Asian, and they would be indentured labor. And then there'll be other people who will be racialized as white, and they would be waged labor earners, right? They would earn a wage, right? Earn money, right? So each of these three categories of people um, will be categorized differently and therefore exploited in different ways um, and also have violence imposed upon them in different ways in order to 
to discipline them into those different clear, distinct categories. Um, um, and of course, there will be kind of cultural and ideological tools that would help to uh, rationalize this and justify this, right? Saying that, you know, these quote unquote Negro people need to be enslaved for these reasons, right? Whether it be justified through religion or racial science, and these quote unquote coolies or people of South Asian heritage need to have a different set of exploitate, you know, um, experiences of exploitation and violence imposed upon them. And then these white people, so quote unquote white people, um, uh, should be exploited in a different kind of way, right? And this is all necessary, um, I would argue, for capitalism, right? Because um, what Karl Marx says about capitalism is that actually it makes people more similar. Um, but what black Marxism argues is that actually right, capitalism seeks to make people more different from each other by exploiting them in different ways. Um, and of course, those exploitations are connected. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that um, the, the, you know, the poor wage earners and the indentured workers and the enslaved workers in the Caribbean weren't connected by capitalism and imperialism, because of course they were, but the ways in which they were being exploited and ruled and controlled um, were, were certainly different. Does that make sense? I do have a tendency to talk quite quickly, apologies. Um, all making sense, fantastic, right. The second definition um, is that racism is a trace of history. Right? Um, this is something that really great historian called Patrick Wolf says, um, and that's why history is so important. And so that we can we can deduce the different, we can better understand, actually, we can better understand the kinds of racial stereotypes and racial ideas that exist today by looking at those histories of racism. So, for instance, we can um, better understand why it is that Barack Obama is racialized as a colored in South Africa by understanding how and why the category of colored emerges in South Africa, right? And the colored population are basically a mixture of different formerly enslaved peoples who are a mixture of African and South Southeast Asian and I think that's it. I think a mixture of African and Southeast Asian um, peoples who were enslaved, um, um, enslaved and or indentured um, in South Africa um, over a course of about two or three hundred years, right? Um, and um, yeah, Brazil has a specific, a different type of kind of racial categorization to the uh, United States historically, um, so, and that's how we can better understand these these differences in these histories. Um, and so finally, there's a one. There's one from uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, which I'm not going to go to in too much detail because I kind of have already because she draws on this Black Marxist tradition a great deal. But it's it's about um, categorizing people in different ways in order to exploit them and impose violence upon them in different ways. Cool. Any questions? All with me? Right. Okay, so we've done some definitions. Okay, I'm going to skip slide number four um, because we're running low on time because we've been having great chit chat, which is good. Um, uh, can, can I just add something? Just, sure, of uh, course. Just add my French point of view, just because Please I do. found it very interesting that in France, the word race is forbidden and it was in the French constitution. And I think it was in 2008, the French government decided to remove the word race from the constitution that way we remove racism, isn't it? Uh, and so now we cannot use the word race. And that's because it doesn't exist because it's not biologic, it's not scientific. Uh, and yeah, and that has lots of consequences, but yeah. yeah. So fantastic, yeah. And so this is really crucial, right? Race isn't real, right? It's an invention. 
but race, racism, or what I might call racialization, so the process in which people become put into a, a, a racial category, certainly is real. Um, and, um, but of course, yeah, the French don't mention race, but they also don't mention racism or racialization, um, which is a very big problem. Um, and yeah, obviously we haven't got time to, as much as I'd love to talk about it, um, we haven't got time to go into that, but it's, it's quite interesting how both Britain and France have these almost um, uh, mirror image, very, a very different approach to um, how they articulate race and racism, i.e. it's disarticulated by the French, they don't want to talk about it. And it's kind of like, particularly in the United States, right? United States and Britain to an extent, it's, it's hyper-articulated, right? It's on the census, you have all of these things. In America, it's very, very normal to have like, um, uh, you know, you have historically black universities and all of these types of things, yet we see very similar kind of racial outcomes in both these different contexts, both by the people who want to talk about race all the time and the people who want to talk about race none of the time, um, and Britain here who's here in the middle who kind of can't really decide whether they want to talk about race or not. Sometimes they, they we, Britain decides that it's a class society and race is this thing that happens in the United States and happens in South Africa, but we don't really do race, we just do class over here in, in Britain. Um, but at other times, Britain um, loves to tell itself that actually it's the, it's the it's a model for the world of anti-racism and we are the best nation in the world, which some people who have written reports, which whose name I'm not going to uh, mention here, um, uh, may, may uh, prostatise and, and, and love to and, and tell um, the rest of the country very proudly indeed. OK, so. Britain has this massive empire, right? Lots of empire. North America, Caribbean, the lion's share of the African continent, Australia, New Zealand, the Indian, you know, South Asia, much of Southeast Asia, lots and lots of people that require control, right? You're taking away the freedoms, you're taking away the liberties, you're hyper-exploiting, at times you're often enslaving huge numbers of people. How is such a small island going to control such large numbers of people? Well, um, of course, there are many ways in which it's done, but one of the ways for the purposes of our interests for this course, of course, is the way the manner in which it's done through policing. So I'm going to talk maybe about two or three, as I mentioned, depending on how much time you have, two or three, maybe four examples of what this kind of what this policing looked like and how it how it emerges um, and how understanding Britain's policing and its colonies um, can help us to eventually un better understanding uh, British policing here on the British mainland. So I'm going to start um, perhaps slightly counterintuitively after the transatlantic, after the um, abolition of chattel slavery in the Caribbean. Um, in um, what was before um, 1865, a relatively unknown backwater of the Caribbean, British Caribbean colony of Jamaica. Um, it's an area called Morant Bay, um, which some of you may be familiar with. And so after chattel slavery was um, abolished, unsurprisingly, many of the uh, former slave owners, slave masters, um, abandoned their land and their properties um, because it was no longer considered profitable or safe for them to um, uh, hold on to these, these lands and properties. Um, and a lot of the land kind of went into disrepair. And of course you have this large, um, purportedly free or relatively free, I should say, uh, black population um, who are unemployed. And so a lot of the black population end up, of course, 
oh, unsurprisingly, occupying this now um, uh, vacant land and growing crops on it, whether it be for subsistence or maybe uh, to sell in small amounts of, of food and crops and what have you. But this is, of course, illegal because these black people don't own the land just because they're not chattel slaves anymore doesn't mean that there's some kind of you know reparations. Um, and so what part one of the things the police force begins to do is arrest black people for um, cultivating crops on land which they do not own which is own which has basically been abandoned um, but they're not allowed to grow crops and so this is one way of kind of criminalizing and, and um, black life and therefore imposing new forms of disciplinary um, control over this newly relatively freed black population but something else begins to happen in Jamaica around the same time as well. We begin to see the, a massive escalation in the control of um, uh, gen in relation to gender and sexuality. So from the um, official abolition of, of um, uh, chattel slavery in uh, 1838, you begin to see more and more, mainly men, being um, tried, convicted and imprisoned or having corporal capital punishment imposed on them imposed on them for um, what considered to be sexual crimes, um, uh, bestiality, uh, so-called sodomy, um, um, and uh, so two people of the same gender having sex, um, and rape. And what, what you begin to see is these um, so-called anti-sodomy laws um, are, are used more and more and more, not because after chattel slavery, um, there was a massive increase in uh, sex, um, what were then considered to be sexual crimes um, or forms of sexual violence. Um, but in fact, because this was a new way of disciplining what were before people who, in, who were, who were in, ch in chattel slavery. Right? So we see the ways in which both land, but also gender and sexuality become ways of policing and controlling this newly freed black population in Jamaica. Um, uh, and, and I can, I don't have time to go into it in a huge amount of detail, but I can put some videos and some resources if people want to read about the use of um, these kind of uh, these uh, homophobic laws um, and how they were imposed by the British in the 19th century. If people want to read more about that, as well as how land was used and access to land was used to control these black populations, if people want to read more about that as well. Um, in response to Lucy's question, yes, so these were not um, formalised um, police in the way that we would understand them today. They were a military, they were, they were effectively um, what's called a, a yeomanry um, or a militia, right? So there was no distinction or no attempt to create the impression of a distinction between um, the military and the police force, right? We only see the kind of the rise of a civilian police force a, a little bit later on. Although importantly, again, if people are interested, um, a lot of the influence of what um, um, eventually became the civilian police force in Britain um, was influenced a great deal by um, the, the uh, the militias who were used to repress slave uprisings and slave revolts in, in islands like St Lucia in the end of the 18th century. Um, so this was kind of like a um, someone called Julian Goh um, at the University of Chicago is currently writing a lot about this, about how uh, the British police uh, were modelled on both the, uh, the colonial police forces in Ireland, but also in parts of uh, the Caribbean as well. Any other questions before I talk about Moran Bay? Okay, so in Moran Bay, um, 
this was this was a site of one of the uh, uh, instances in which a, a significant number of black people had been uh, toiling on this land, uh, which had been left vacant by the former slave masters, and they were arrested for it and tried. And a large crowd um, gathers outside of the courthouse and begins throwing um, bricks and other missiles at the courthouse as these people are tried and convicted for uh, cultivating on land um, which they do not own um, and therefore is considered um, uh, theft. And the response to this um, rebellion against uh, British colonial rule um, in 1865 is hugely violent. Um, so after the protest, um, uh, seven men were killed by the voluntary militia. Um, and the protesters were attacked, um, um, who then effectively burnt the courts down, courthouse down um, and um, a, a couple of nearby buildings. But over the next um, two or three days, uh, the peasants rose up against um, the British colonial authorities um, and the British colonial soldiers killed over 400 black Jamaicans, arrested over 350 more, um, including Paul Bogle, who was one of the leaders of this particular rebellion. Um, and, and they were all, uh, many of them were later executed, but many of them put on trial. Um, a further 600 were flogged um, and imprisoned, while thousands of homes were burned. And this is only the British um, official record. Um, it may well and certainly was far more brutal and violent than, than in fact that was. And this is really crucial and, and important because it's one of the ways of illustrating how these these ideals um, and these uh, principles of the Enlightenment, or these kind of these foundations of modern democracy, right? The idea of a, a fair trial by jury, um, the idea of uh, the rule of law, where the people who are in positions of power should have to have to abide by the laws of the land. All of these ideals, which were emerging, or that Britain liked to say were emerging from Britain. Um, but they weren't necessarily, they, that wasn't necessarily the case. If people want to read more, I recommend reading The Black Atlantic by Paul Gilroy. Um, so these ideas were beginning to um, uh, kind of take root in Britain on the British mainland, whilst in Britain's colonies, the polar opposite was in fact true. And that the idea that these colonized peoples should have, um, should be, um, should enjoy freedoms and liberties like the rule of law and the right to a trial and all of these types of things went out the window and it was actually the, the mirror image of this and, and actually after enslavement, um, after chattel slavery was abolished, um, uh, British colonial rule starts to go in more or less the opposite direction. Any questions? Making sense? Because I'm about to skip forward in history. Actually, we're going to take a break and then I'm going to skip forward in history. Any questions before we take a break? Okay, let's take a five minute comfort break. Um, go to the loo, put the kettle on, stare out the window, think happy thoughts. And then when we get back, we are going to think about the end of empire. Because I think the end of empire, we're gonna skip forward to the end of empire, almost 100 years. Um, and we're gonna think about um, uh, policing at the end of empire. So I'll see you all at five minutes past three. Thanks, Adam.
Okay, welcome back everyone. Um, hope you're feeling refreshed. I'll just give it a second for everyone to click back on. Um, okay, in those five minutes of brief rest and reflection, does anyone have any questions or would like anyone any would anyone like anything to be clarified? Thomas, I didn't notice you put a question into the chat. Sorry, I, I, I missed the chat as I was um, ramping on. Um, but I think that certainly it was, I think we're quite fluid. Um, uh, who is it who writes about this well? Again, Paul Gilroy writes about this in Against Race, where he talks about how race is used to identify some people as simply subhuman. Um, but more often I would say, or well, the phrase he's, he uses is infrahuman. Um, which I think is a useful one because, of course, in some contexts, say let's take for instance, um, uh, black people enslaved in the British Caribbean, they would can be they, they would be articulated as being non-human um, for certain purposes. But of course, that's not the case because in many other in in many other instances, they would certainly be human beings because, um, as we know, um, sexual power being imposed upon enslaved women, for instance. Uh, suggests that these people are in fact not subhuman, right? Um, because otherwise you would not be able to bear children by them. Um, and so Paul Gilroy uses this term infrahuman, um, which is um, the idea that they're kind of um, on, on the borders and, the, and are this, um, uh, uh, I guess, kind of vague and lucid and fluid kind of, uh, of human, which, which uh, in some cases isn't quite human, in some cases is, if that makes sense. It's quite a complicated answer to your what perhaps seems like quite a simple question, but I think it's, yeah, it's this way in which race can be so fluid and, and so contradictory, actually, right? Um, in ways I think are really crucial for understanding its power. Um, but, yeah. Any other, oh, I've seen people have put things in the chats. Were relations with black people also regulated in the sense of reproduction? Yes, um, Cersei. I mean, um, again, I can add readings to the um, to the Dropbox, so we don't have time to go into it. But reproduction was so so fundamentally important um, for racial power. So, one of the really crucial things that emerges during uh, Britain's colonial expansion is the idea of the nuclear family, right? really really crucial um, as capitalism uh, emerges um, and is and replaces um, kind of feudal systems where peasants are kind of toiling on land where everyone in the family toils on land and then you just pay your aristocrats some corn or whatever um, uh, when the harvests um, come in when when uh, wage labor this ideal that wage labor emerges the idea is that the man should go out earn a wage come home and then there is this and then and then the woman should raise um, the children right and there's a very distinct hierarchy in the home with the man on top and the women and children below and of course when this was a really important part of the civilized so-called civilizing mission uh, and one of the ways in which um colonial rule was rationalized was through the idea that these people have chaotic um, families, right, where you have these extended family networks, you have people of the same gender or, or sex having um, having sexual relations with each other, all of these terrible things are happening all over the Americas and Africa and Asia and Australia, whereas here in Europe, we have the nuclear family, of course, this is a lie, we, we like to tell ourselves that we are this, this nation of 
nuclear families where the man is at the top and the women and children at the bottom. And the, the idea, one of the reasons this was considered to be so important was the was because it was the, the, the idea was that if people respect the hierarchy within the home, then they will respect the hierarchy within the nation. Right? So the, the, the family unit was considered to be almost a microcosm of the nation, a, a training ground to train people to respect the hierarchy of the nation was, was by making sure that people had these strict hierarchical nuclear families. And this was really crucial for helping to discipline the working classes um, of Britain, but it was also considered to be fundamentally important for disciplining uh, colonised populations as well. So gender and sexuality were really fundamental um, uh, tools of, of um, both capitalist expansion, but also um, imperialism and colonialism as well. Um, and again, if people want to read more about that, uh, I might need reminding because there's lots of these things. <laughs> um, I, I can put readings in the, uh, in, the, uh, in the folder as well. Any other questions? Uh, Nathaniel's written, um, uh, as you're talking about reproduction laws, it's making me think uh, uh, matri locality and how that was seen as something that needs to be changed. Um, could you maybe expand on that for the group a little bit, Nathaniel? Is that okay? So just, it was natural locality, but auto-corrected to that. Um, that's just a term I've come to understand recently, really. Um, I guess living it in, you know, of the Caribbean descent, but the idea of like women being the source of, of love and nurture in the in the family set up um slightly different to what people call matriarch, even though I'd refer to my grandma as the matriarch family, but how that was then looked at in Jamaica as a problem that needed to be solved and how they had big marriage drives there to to try and recreate the idea of a nuclear family, like you said. Um because you kind of answered it as you were continuing your last point, but just it's really frustrating to to hear that how you or people live is a problem that needs to be solved. Right, yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and, and I think that's a really crucial point actually you made right at the end, the idea that these people are a problem that needs to be solved. I think this is a, that's a really, I think, um, uh, succinct way of putting it. And so even, um, so the idea that, you know, for instance, if we're still talking about the, um, uh, the slave colonies of the Caribbean, these people are Docile, they're lazy, they don't understand how to cultivate land properly, they are a problem that needs to be fixed. The problem is that they're docile, and the way in which we fix it is forced labour, right? Um, and so even, even chattel slavery was considered to an extent to be a kind of civilising mission in that regard, right? Um, uh, even um, a, a, a not disconnected from the what we might more commonly associate with the civilising mission of setting up churches and schools and, um, and what have you. Uh, Joanna's asked, do you think that when the nuclear family was incepted, it essentially gave birth to toxic masculinity or traces of this apparent beforehand? I know, I mean, certainly patriarchy is much older than capitalism, um, but I think that capitalism utilised patriarchy in, in that very specific way, well, has utilised it in many ways, but one of the ways in which it's utilised it is through the imposition um, and the entrenchment of this idea of the nuclear family as being the ideal family structure. Um, and this emerges as this capitalist class arises um, with capitalism, whereas before you have obviously an aristocracy and a peasantry, um, and neither of them are really that wedded to the nuclear family. The peasants have like long big extended families and the aristocracy are basically marrying their cousins, right? So you, they're not really as wedded to this idea of the nuclear family as this kind of uh, bourgeois capitalist class um, is as it emerges in uh, the 19th century, 18th and 19th centuries. Any other questions? 
No? Shall I move? Shall we, shall we, shall we uh, continue on our, on our journey? Okay, let's do that. Right. Where are my slides? Where are we at now? Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about colonial history and then we're going to talk about the reading. That's okay, because I think the reading helps uh, kind of connect um, what's happening in Britain's colonies um, to what's taking place on the British mainland and its legacies, if that's okay. Right, so I think one of the reasons uh, the end of empire is so useful for understanding um, uh, how racism has shaped policing is because of what we often what's often referred to as counter the rise of counter insurgency policing. So this these are forms of policing which are which emerge in order to repress anti-colonial struggles. So um, the context of places like uh, Trinidad, where there is um, a, a big labor movement, um, mainly a labor movement uh, arising, which is resisting in, um, uh, British colonialism in in, uh, in Trinidad in the Caribbean or whether it be somewhere like Malaya or Kenya, in which both of these British colonies had guerrilla insurgencies, where people were engaged in kind of um, armed guerrilla warfare against the British states in order to attempt to gain or eventually gain their independence. Or we have the context of, um, I guess Hong Kong is probably more similar to Trinidad, where we have a large number of kind of protests and labour movements and struggles against um, uh, uh, the British uh, colonial authorities. And it's in this context where we see a number of different really crucial tactics and methods emerging because by the nine, even in the 1930s, but certainly by the, by the post-war period, it's really crucial for Britain to differentiate itself as the good moral empire, as opposed to the bad empire, of course, Nazi Germany, right? Um, and so one of the ways in which it does this is by arguing that, British colonialism, but particularly British colonial policing, rarely uses coercive force, rarely deploys um, um, uh, violence, uh, the violence that might be associated with, um, of course, the Nazi empire, but even the, the violence that we might associate with um, uh, uh, the French in Algeria, for instance, or, um, or, or the histories of the Portuguese and, Portuguese and Spanish um, colonies. And the, what the discourse that emerges in, in order to, I guess, illustrate and exemplify this is the idea of the battle for hearts and minds. Right? It's really crucial that Britain tells the world that um, the end of its empire isn't a, a violent, bloody affair. It's a battle for hearts and minds. And unfortunately, Britain doesn't always win its battle for hearts and minds, which is why they therefore agree to peacefully hand over power. But of course, this is a fantasy. This is a lie. Because um, I'm not going to talk about it in an enormous detail because it's all very kind of brutal and gruesome and, and horrendous. But if people want to, if people want to read the brutality and the horrendousness, I can suggest resources in order to, to go there. Um, but what is crucial are some of the methods and tactics which are deployed. Um, so if you're listening to this or you're following on your um, following the slides, um, slide number eight. Um, titled Colonial Policing. Um, and there I've put eight, eight, I would say, of the key tactics that's used in these uh, counterinsurgency operations. Um, so if we take, um, if we take colonial Kenya, for instance, um, so Kenya was a settler colony of Britons, 
um, not dissimilar to South Africa or Rhodesia, what's now called Zimbabwe and Zambia, um, in which large um, numbers of uh, British people settled in Kenya, um, uh, ethnically cleansing um, people from the most arable land, mainly ethnically cleansing the Kikuyu population from a lot of the most arable land, settling on them themselves, and then setting up a system of apartheid. Um, not dissimilar to South Africa, where black people are banned from um, you know, uh, certain educational and institutions, certain areas of work, particularly professional or what we might call skilled labor, um, and banned from going to certain uh, areas of urban, urban uh, conurbations um, across Kenya as well. And like South Africa and Rhodesia, um, there was an armed uprising against this system of apartheid in uh, beginning in the post-war period, um, particularly when many of Kikuyu people uh, came back from fighting for Britain in World War II. And so there were a number of things the British, the British um, uh, counterinsurgency police used in order to uh, try to repress this, uh, this armed uprising against its, against its regime. One of the things that it did, um, I'm, first I'm going to talk about, I guess, the practical things it did, and then I'll talk about the kind of more kind of cultural, ideological, conceptual things that it did. So in terms of policies and practices, um, there were probably, yeah, probably five, five, six, seven, eight different policies and practices that they, they deployed. The first one, and this is a really crucial one, was the identification of a suspect community. Uh, so in the context of um, Trinidad, it would have been trade unionists mainly, um, because it was a lot of labour movements, similarly in Kenya, oh, sorry, similarly in Hong Kong. In uh, Northern Ireland, it would have been uh, Irish Republicans. In Malaya, it would have been, it was mainly uh, Chinese Malay or people of Chinese heritage living in Malaya. In the context of Kenya, it was the Kikuyu nation. Um, and so this was considered to be the, um, the community or the population which were on the one hand um, uh, seem to be involved in, in much of the political dissidents but more but also very very crucially considered to be essentially violent essentially deviant essentially um, immoral um, it, uh, so they were accused of and I can show you some of the posters they use accused of lots of depravity and things like that so identifying a suspect community the second thing, once you've once this suspect community has been identified, um, forms of collective punishment and preemptive violence are imposed upon them. And so this can include things like um, uh, ethnically cleansing people from their lands and putting them into effectively camps, which was the case in both Malaya and Kenya, um, as well as Rhodesia and none of other colonies and where, in which forced labour, torture and other forms of maltreatment um, were commonplace but also forms of um, mass surveillance as well. So this mass surveillance can include putting people into camps, but also things like checkpoints, um, make, issuing people with ID cards, which they have to carry with them, um, and, and pet war, war effectively papers rather than ID cards in the 1940s and 50s, um, uh, and the censoring of specific materials. Um, the other thing that was really crucial about it was a um, the, the need to, or the, the um, the rolling back of the idea that the police force should be civilian. So this is a, a, an idea which was popularized in the 19th, 19th century. And the idea, that, the idea that the military and the police should converge um, and that militarized tactics should be a part and parcel of, of policing tactics. But also, and really crucially as well, the suspension of the rule of law. So the idea that this is now an emergency situation and the rule of law should, can and should no longer apply. Um, and 
I guess kind of um, reflecting to an extent Nathaniel's earlier points, if you go to move to slide 10, and I've got a quote here from Cap Captain, well, he was Captain then, but um, he's now Sir Frank Kitson um, in his book, Gangs and Gangs and Counter Gangs. He said he talks about put, um, uh, the process of putting large numbers of Kenyans into these uh, labor camps. Um, he says, it was of course, contrary to the principles of British justice but it was merciful. Given the camps probably saved many Mau Mau, which was the name the British gave to the anti-colonial movement, lives upon locking, saved so many Mau Mau lives by locking up people who would otherwise have joined the gangs and been killed by the security forces. So you see here that the, the, the labor camps, the, the, the organized violence of the British is seen to have a, a effectively a civilizing force upon um, the Kikuyu people who are, who are put into these labor camps, because otherwise they would have joined um, uh, the, the so-called Mau Mau, they would have joined the anti-colonial uprising, uh, they would have become what the British termed terrorists, and therefore would have had to be killed by the British uh, security forces. Um, but what we also see here, which is really crucial, um, are the ways in which, if you go to slide number 12, you can see some of the ways in which this um, kind of colonial policing was, was rationalised and justified through race racialized ideas. Right? So on the left-hand side, you could see a very racist image of a so-called Mau Mau saying the Mau Mau want your gun, see that they don't get it, because of course the British carried arms, unsurprisingly, um, both civilian British people as well as the British police force um, in Kenya. And if you look closely, you can also see uh, a film, many films were made about uh, the Mau Mau um, emergency, where you can see where, where the uh, movie post says, electrifying, Afri Africa explodes with naked terror. Um, and actually, I'm going to make it a bit bigger so I can see it properly. Um, uh, friends, one of it says, frenzied terrorists sworn as killers in savage blood drinking rituals so it's all these rituals of um of mau of so-called mau mau drinking um human blood filmed under the fire in the steaming jungles of africa see the secrets killer society massacres that horrified the world right so it, it's it's um um i think in a painfully ironic way as britain is setting up what are effectively concentration camps hanging thousands and incarcerating and maltreating hundreds of thousands of African people. The, the message that they are projecting around the world is that it is the Africans that are shocking the world of their massacres. It is the Africans who are um, engaging in this, in, 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 in this mass violence. So we see here the ways in which, um, uh, in, in very kind of practical ways, we see um, kind of colonial policing. Um, becoming, I guess, root, um, routinized, routinized, is that a word? Um, but being, um, uh, but, uh, um, but being uh, formalized in many different ways, but also the ways in which these kind of racial stereotypes and racial ideas being reformulated as well, reconstituted in ways that become really um, crucial for Britain rationalizing and justifying the kind of colonial violence that it's engaged in. And actually, before I move on, any questions? No? I'm, oh, I'm not following the chat. It's, it's kind of like multitasking online, isn't it? Okay, nothing in the chat. Okay, and I can't see any hands. Okay, and one of the other ways in which you see this, if you go back to slide number 10, this um, quote from uh, now Sir Frank Kitson, is I think Frank Kitson's a really interesting person because um, he, he 
gets involved in colonial policing first in Malaya, um, uh, setting up the labor camps in Malaya and policing the and the communities there, the colonized communities there. And then based on that experience, he's then drafted in to become a captain in Kenya. And he then masterminds the camps that are set up um, for the Kikuyu people in Kenya. And it's, and it's then after that that he's then taken to um, Northern Ireland to help set up the um, policing of uh, people in Northern Ireland and, then, and using that counterinsurgency and colonial policing experiences there. Right? So you can see the ways in which not only were the similar kinds of policies used in these different colonial um, contexts in order to police colonized populations, but the very same practitioners and policymakers were also drafted in in order to, for this what's often called colonial careering, um, which demonstrates a, a degree of consistency um, between these different colonial contexts. Not the, I'm, I'm not saying these colonial contexts are the same, they certainly won't. Um, and if I had time, I would talk about the, the many nuances. But what I think is is, is useful is, is appreciating the ways in which there are, cert, there are certain threads of consistency between the different ways in which uh, Britain's uh, policing um, uh, or racialized British policing arises um, out of this colonial context. Any questions? All clear, everything's clear, everything's clear, everything's clear. Fantastic, okay. Um, so the slides which come a little bit later, starting from slide number 12, no, slide number 13, sorry, are from Hong Kong. Um, I think Hong Kong's, well, there are two reasons Hong Kong's important. One of them I'm gonna to come to when we talk about 90, the 1980s rebellions in Britain, but it's also really useful because um, I get to use my holiday photos. Um, well, they're not really my holiday photos. Um, I went to Hong Kong um, for a, when I, I used to work in the geography department at King's and they do a trip to Hong Kong every year. And one of the things that is in the center of Hong Kong um, that we took the students around is a um, museum for policing. So when the British ruled Hong Kong, they put their police station and effectively a relatively small kind of prison uh, building, no, well, actually a pretty big prison building, actually, if I remember correctly, um, right in the center of town, right? Just this really big imposition and demonstration of British power, colonial power. And so when the Chinese um, uh, regained power or jurisdiction um, uh, over um, Hong Kong, they said one of the things that that's British police station is a symbol of British power, British colonial power. We want it removed from the center of the city, put the police station somewhere else. And the Hong Kong government said, yep, yeah, sure, absolutely no problem. Removed um, the police station from the center of Hong Kong. And in that same building, they replaced it with a museum to British policing. Um, um, and of course it's run, it's you know controlled by uh, the elites of Hong Kong who had obviously had a very good relationship with their colonial uh, master. And so the whole thing is basically a big celebration of British colonial policing. But there are really kind of interesting, quite ironic things that um, is done there. I'm actually gonna share my screen for this so that we can all just look at it together. Um, hopefully you can all see that now. Um, so you can see here that on the right hand side of your screen, they're talking about an ethnically diverse team. But if you look at the actual caption, what we actually see is a racialized division of labor. Right? So take kind of liberal language of multiculturalism and ethnic diversity and, and all these lovely fluffy things that we all love a great deal. Um, and they put that as the title. But what Britain are actually doing um, 
uh, in its colonial police force is setting up a racialized and a hierarchical racialized division of labor. So here it says that um, the Hong Kong police has always compromised um, comprised of officers from different ethnic backgrounds, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Um, and they were divided into four contingents: A, B, C, and D. Um, for Europeans, Indians, local Chinese, and those from um, the Wahalwe, respectively. Um, and then there's a little joke about how uh, the Chinese police officers are actually uh, the worst uh, police officers. Um, and as you go on, you, it demonstrates how actually these different police officers had different changing rooms, they ate and um, in different uh, canteens, they slept in different dormitories, they had different positions, I, I assume they're also paid differently. Um, and then it goes on to talk about the different contexts in which the, this fantastic British colonial police force were, um, uh, were summoned. Uh, the 1967 workers' strike at a plastic plastic flower factory in 1971, when a number of students were demonstrating um, uh, over the autonomy of the uh, Doyu Islands, um, i.e. the independence of them from British colonial rule. And again, um, in 1981, um, uh, to basically police migrants, the government abolishes its touch-based policy for mainland Chinese illegal immigrants in 1980 and begins repatriating people. So you see the ways in which British colonial, uh, colonial policing is used to repress uh, trade unions, uh, student movements for independent, for independent struggles, as well as uh, controlling migration as well. Um, and it's all there, um, it's all there for you to see in the lovely uh, Hong Kong Museum. I've um, oh, got a question. Um, is it any coincidence that in Sparkhill, Birmingham, there was one of the most well-stocked police museums in England? Is there something to say about um, eulogising police powers through museums in ethnically diverse areas? That's a really interesting question. Um, the short answer is, if I, well, the short answer is I don't know. Um, I think that, I know that uh, British policing policies um, uh, have put more and more resources into kind of PR and public relations related things. I don't know a huge amount about police museums, if I'm perfectly honest. I mean, even my analysis of the, the one in Hong Kong was kind of what I reckon. I didn't do a lot of kind of reading um, myself around um, the museum beyond its kind of general background. Um, but I, but, and, and I guess in my experience of museums, I guess I have a fair fair amount of experience in museums more generally. I, for me, museums have been used more, I think, to justify empire and um, Britain's kind of moral leadership and intellectual leadership around the world, but also to justify, I guess, war. Um, if you go to the Imperial War Museum, um, you'll see that, but there, there are museums to the various armed forces um, all around uh, the country. And I think that's partly because um, uh, Britain has a greater investment um, in, uh, I guess, war and empire than it perhaps it does in its domestic police force. And I, but I think it's also about the resources um, that these different institutions have at their disposal and the fact that I think uh, yeah, the, the armed forces have a, a significantly greater budget um, than the domestic police force do. And perhaps if the domestic police force had the budget to set up an equivalent of the RAF museum or something like that, then um, they certainly would. But th this is literally just what I reckon. Uh, any other questions before we discuss the reading and the connections between the colonial and um, what takes place in the centre of empire, the metropole? No? Okay, let's get to it then. Where are my slides? Okay, here you are. Right, so 
crucially, what we begin to see in the post-war period um, isn't simply um, the end of the British Empire um, and these uh, anti-colonial movements being repressed in very violent, quite systematic ways, which used quite specific kinds of pol violent police and tactics of control and coercion um, and violence, being justified and rationalised through racial ideas, racist ideas. But of course, the other thing we see in the post-war period um, in relation to empire are people from Britain's colonies migrating to the centre of empire in significant numbers. And of course, I'm, I assume people are relatively familiar with this history, so I won't go into it in too much detail, and people are so familiar with the so-called Windrush, Windrush generation. But something else also begins to migrate to, to the British mainland um, in that post-war period. Not simply do these colonial migrants from the so-called coloured Commonwealth begin to migrate in significant numbers from, uh, from the colonies to the mother country, what's often referred to in academia as the metropole. But we also see those kinds of colonial ideas begin to migrate to the British mainland as well. Because in order for Britain to be able to effectively control and discipline its um, new, I would say, it's not accurate to say newly acquired um, uh, Black and Asian population, because they're not newly acquired, they're just new to the mainland. Um, but to this new to the mainland, Black and Brown population, it requires the comparable or similar kinds of uh, colonial policing um, in order to in, in order to uh, justify the kinds of exploitation um, and violence and control that it seeks to impose upon them. And it's, so it's here that we begin to see these kinds of tactics which were before only used in Britain's colonies, including Northern Ireland, begin to be used on the British mainland for the first time. And, and it's here um, that we can begin to think about um, our reading um, for, for this week, um, The Virus is the Police, uh, by James Trafford, um, who's written an, an interesting book um, called uh, The Empire at Home, uh, published by Pluto Press earlier this year. Um, so I'm just, um, I'm just going to share my screen again, um, and just go through two kind of sections of the text and just talk through them, and then if anyone's got any questions or ideas or just thoughts on the reading in general, we can maybe have a, a more general chit-chat. Share screen time. So in, in this section, um, uh, James Trafford says, uh, the separation of high wage tech, information and management work from low wage service sector has the effect of tightly coupling both together. Um, um, uh, so different forms of exploitation. Um, as lockdown under COVID-19 is confirmed, the wealthy are reliant on service workers, cleaners, childminders, and delivery riders, but need these people to live somewhere else, please, somewhere off stage, out of sight. Right, so you've got these two different kinds of earners, um, uh, high wage earners um, who are reliant on uh, many people from other sections of the service sector. Right? Um, delivery drivers, child miners, cleaners, other service works, etc. Um, and this spatialized intimacy and separation. So what he, what he means by that is um, when he says spatialized, he just means things that happen across space, you know, somewhere um, of, of intimacy. Right. So people who, are, who cook your food for you and bring it to your front door, people who raise your children, people who feed your home clean your home, but also separation. Um, I please live in different communities to me so I can like either through like gentrification or what have you, 
Um, calls to mind um, Fanon's analysis of which Paul Gilroy writes, um, their common racialization ensured that they were bound to each other so tightly that each, each was unthinkable without the proximity to the other. Right? So what he's saying is that um, um, this is Fanon talking about the colonial context, right? Where he says that um, white people in, he's writing about Algeria, white people in Algeria, but similarly also in the Caribbean and elsewhere, being racialized as white and what it means to be white, right? To, and what it means to be white is to have power over colonized people, whether they be racialized as Arab in Algeria or racialized as black in the Caribbean. The fact that, that, that being racialized as white means that you can only be racialized as white um, uh, in relation to people who are not racialized as white, who are racialized as something else. And so therefore, in order to understand your whiteness and in order to um uh, and and what and the power that comes with that you it can own that can only arise in proximity to the the other or people who are not racialized as white right? people who are racialized as arab racialized as black what have you so the judicial order required to manage this vicious proximity relies on the naturalization of contingent classifications of people as other foreigner or migrants. So what he's what James Shaffer is saying here is that um, um, the um, in order to in order to maintain and continue or to manage um, this uh, this the proximity of these of these relations, right? The people living in very close proximity to each other, but leading totally different lives and having very very different spheres of power. Whether that be historically with um, enslaved or colonized labor. Um, similarly, you know, cooking meals and working on land and doing all of those types of things, um, or whether it be today with people in the service sector, of course, in order for this um, vicious proximity to be managed, this net this relies on people being classified in very very different ways. So to live in such an intimate way with people that are exploited so differently to you, this can only this 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 system can only be managed through be people being classified in, in very, very different ways, right? So I can only rationalize the fact that um, I can afford to have people cook and bring my food to the door, clean my home, raise my children, do all of this kind of stuff, right? And we can only have this system of massive exploitation if the people doing the, the hyper-exploited work are categorized differently to the people not doing, not doing that hyper-exploited work, right? And the um, and the categories he chooses to use are the idea of other foreigner or migrants, right? Because it's it's um this this labor is racialized as, as migrant labor, as, as foreign labor, or as racially othered labor. Does that make sense? Does anyone have any questions? Doing a bit of theory, got to do a bit, a bit of theory. I can't let you guys get away with having no theory. Right, let's hit the second, let's do the second para shall we right um for instance um low grade information is coupled with our involvement in systems prevents um in systems like prevents right um so uh prevents is the government's policy or or, or program i should say of so-called de-radicalization which um, disproportionately criminalizes muslim communities um uh and so it uses kind of low-grade information, um, which it gets from community organizations and charities and social work, as well as universities. <clears throat> um, and 
it uses that. So now in the context of counterterrorism or the policing of gangs or, or the policing of violent crime, the collation and combination of bits of knowledge under network analysis, risk prediction models and kinship are used to target pre-criminal spaces where suspicion is the foundation of intervention. Right? So what does this mean? What, what James Trafford is saying here is that but with, with when the police use problem um, uh, systems like Prevent or the Gangs Matrix, which is a program for policing so-called gangs, um, or the hostile environment, which it uses for criminalizing uh, undocumented people or people suspected of being undocumented, it can it can gather bits of information from where people study or where they work or where they live or where they you know have a community organization or where they worship um, in order to identify. Um, where people are likely to join a gang or become a terrorist or harbor undocumented, you know, or, or you know, provide work or um, uh, shelter for undocumented people, right? And so this is a kind of pre-criminal, these are considered to be pre-criminal spaces, right? Because the crime hasn't happened yet, the person hasn't joined a gang yet, um, uh, and pers this person hasn't become a terrorist yet, but we know that the mosque and the council estate are these places where are, are considered to be pre-criminal, because that's where people are about to become a terrorist or a gangster or, or undocumented. And the so these spaces don't just preempt crime, they institute in procedure that not policing yourself is facetiously um, as the police is criminalized for suspect communities, right? So what he's saying here is that it's not simply that the police want attempting to preempt crime, but they're, they're, they're arguing that um, the people who attend the community center, worship at this mosque, study this university, um, they also need to be policing the people that come into those spaces, right? Because it's, these are considered to be spaces of suspicion. Um, and the criminalization of, of what he refers to as suspect communities, right, which is, the, of course, this term we, we, we learned about earlier when we talked about counterinsurgency policing. The roadblocks, fines, checkpoints, random stops and seemingly arbitrary use of powers and disruption of movements that many are experiencing under lockdown are, them, are their mainstay. Right? So what he's saying is that while everyone's experiencing more fines and checkpoints and stops and things like that um, during this COVID lockdown, actually the infrastructure for all of this um, policing during the lockdown was has been developed, I would argue, both during the colonial period, but also for policing these suspect communities here in Britain, whether they be Muslim populations, black communities, or um, uh, migrant communities, and what have you. Making sense. I've seen someone's written something in the chat. Uh, Arthur, you wanted to make a contribution. Do you want to do you want to talk? Could you talk? Is that yeah, okay? I think I just wrote it out to like get my thoughts out. But I've, sometimes when we ask white people what is being white, and we've had and um, have them struggle to, to name it um, because they don't give it much thought. Um, whereas if you ask like someone like me, I'd probably really quickly be able to tell you like what I am. So. Um, but I think framing it understanding whiteness and proximity to those people that are other or foreign or migrant is really interesting because yeah, I guess I'm realizing if people aren't around that for a long period of time or ever then you're kind of unaware of it I talk about dominant culture a lot of work and like if you're in the dominant culture you're not aware of you're not aware that you're in it because it supports you and sustains you um but yeah I just find it interesting because that's it's maybe given me some answers um as to like how people think about 
to emphasize humanity, or just, I guess their place in sight and if, they, if it's an active thought or not. Um, I guess some would argue that it's always active, some would argue against it, but yeah, just the idea of being able to like name and say what you are on command, some like me is easy, but for others, I appreciate that it's not. Yeah. Um, and if people want to read more about that, I, rec I highly recommend reading James Baldwin. Um, he's got, he, he's one of the, um, I guess, foundations of what's now called critical whiteness studies. Um, and he talks about this idea of whiteness being, um, but he writes about it in a far more beautiful way than I can articulate. But he talks about the, um, <laughs> the way in which whiteness is um, it, on the kind of default human being to which all other human beings are compared and therefore invisible um, and is, and is, and is the, uh, the um, what's the word, um, the yardstick um, to which all other human beings are kind of othered or compared. Um, yeah, the, the thoughts. Um, any other thoughts, questions before we um, do a bit more of the reading and then I close by um, talking about um, uh, this, these kind of colonial links in a bit more detail. Could I just ask, um, what would you read of James Baldwin about whiteness? That's a good question, and I can't actually remember off the top of my head. Um, it's been far long since I've oh god, since I've read any fiction. Oh. Um, uh, but I, I can look it up, and then I and then I can add it in the group. Sorry, Thomas, did you want to... the, the fire next time? Could be a good place to start. The fire next time. The fire, the fire next time. Fire next time. Thank the fire, you. Fire, fire next time. Yes, that's fantastic. Thank you, Thomas. Yes, did you want to say something else? Really quickly, because um, I know you don't, you don't have much time, but um, this is really putting my brain on fire, thinking about the way that the red list with COVID now is operating, particularly because it's targeting or listing many global South countries, mm -hmm. right? So that they're seen as diseased and possibly contagious, and at the same time, outlaw and not of the not of this nation, even though many of them are Commonwealth nations. That's all. Yeah, definitely. Very interesting. Completely right. Um, okay. Any other thoughts, questions before I delve back into one more bit from the reading? No? Okay. Okay. Conversion and consent. Catastrophically on Easter weekend um, in uh, Adelaide, Brussels' 19-year-old um, Adil was killed during a police chase in fear of being fined. Soon afterwards, graffiti painted across the region stated, "Le virus, c'est la police. It is, it means the virus is the police. It is indisputable that policing has shaped lockdown as crisis, finding the already poor spurious finding the already poor, spurious arrests that force people into contact, restricting access to parks, exercise, necessary services, enforcing incarceration, already overcrowded and virus-ridden prisons. However, approaching policing lockdown on, on the terms of abuse of powers, increased authoritarian or prejudiced application, risks hiding the normalization of counterinsurgency in our primary mo mode of control. So what he's saying is that actually these, these problems that people have articulated with the policing of lockdown, right? Abuse of power, authoritarianism, um, the, uh, these uh, powers being uh, um, deployed in a prejudicial way, actually um, um, uh, 
doesn't acknowledge or fails to acknowledge the fact that actually these kinds of powers emerged from counterinsurgency policing in the colonial period. Um, and therefore, authoritarianism, abuse of power, and being used in a prejudicial, i.e. racialized manner, is actually the norm for counterinsurgency policing. The problem with the zero-sum game of consent and coercion, right, so the idea that either the policing is policing with, is with the consent of the community or they have to coerce people, isn't just that it's differentially applied, right, so that some people um, are policed with consent and some people are policed with coercion, depending on how you're classed or how you're racialized, or that it is so often misused. It is that it includes how policing is itself generative of consent and how our socio-political order has been maintained through logics of insurgency. Right? So, so what that means is that the reason that policing can exist in the way that it does right, and have the kind of coercive power that it has is because of because governments um, and well, I, I would say the states, but also capital as well, can create the impression that society is under threat from insurgents. Right? During the colonial period, this would be the Mau Mau in Kenya or the, um, uh, the Chinese Malay in Malaya or what have you. But of course, the insurgents in the gangsters, the terrorists, these illegal immigrants, right? these are the insurgents. And that's how therefore the police, this kind of policing gains, operates not simply through coercing these suspect communities, terrorists, the gangsters, the, the undocumented, but also through the consent of the people who are who who are who consider these um, uh, these peoples um, or these suspects to be a threat. Bringing this into view might help us to understand the cross political demand for excessive policing, together with its immediate critique. Um, in fact, hmm, I'm going to stop there actually. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the con wider context of, 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 of what um, James Trafford is, is talking about. I've kind of packed in a huge amount, right? This is really crucial, right? So in the 1960s, in the 1970s in Britain, right, you see the emergence of a new category of crime, not a crime in itself, but a category of crime. And this category of crime, like the categories of crime that have been talked about in the James Trafford piece, the idea of the terrorist or the gangster or the or the illegal immigrants, this category of crime is the mugger. Right? We're all familiar with this term mugging, I see. And the mugger, mugging is not a, a crime in and of itself. It is a category of crime. Right? And so what a category of crime is, is it, it can kind of vacuum up lots of existing um, crimes, right? So for mugging, it could be like theft or um, robbery and assaults and things like that and what that does is it creates the impression of a new problem of a different problem and if there is a new problem and a different problem it can be attributed to a new and different people and of course in the 1970s that's purportedly new and different problem is attributed to the black communities in urban areas across England and, and parts of Wales and Scotland as well and so in response to that, you see a massive escalation in um, policing tactics of stop of, of now this, this suspect community has been identified. You see um, kind of forms of pre-criminal um, uh, engagement. So raiding of homes and black businesses, stopping, stopping and searching people, um, arresting them and so on and so forth. And in response to that, by 1980, 1981 and 1985, you see urban rebellions arising across England. 
Um, first in uh, St Paul's in Bristol following the raid of a black run cafe called the Black and White Cafe, but then more famously of course in Brixton following the, a number of attempted arrests of young people and, um, and uh, massive escalation in the use of stop and search powers and their power, uh, the Sussels. And, but you really see these kind of, you see more and more colonial tactics really being used in, um, not in Brixton or in St Paul's where the rebellions first began, but actually in Toxteth in Liverpool and Moss Side in Manchester. Because it's in these two contexts where you see, um, for the first time on the British mainland, um, poison gas being used. So CS spray, tear gas, those types of um, things being used to disperse crowds. Before that, um, the British had only ever used um, um, those kinds of poison gas in Northern Ireland um, and its other and its colonies. The other colonial tactic, policing tactic you see um, in Toxic and Moss Side is a tactic which was used, which was basically used taking an armoured vehicle, um, so a very militarised vehicle, and, and charging into large crowds of people in a purported attempt to disperse them. Again, this was a tactic that had been used in Northern Ireland and a number of other colonial contexts and was then used on the British mainland in 1981, first in Toxic, then in Moss Side, it actually led to the death of a young disabled person. The other kind of colonial tactic um, you see is what's the other one? Oh yeah, in, 19, in 1985, um, which is um, the use of um, uh, rubber bullets or baton rounds, even though they weren't actually deployed um, uh, in 1985. This time in Tottenham in North London, um, but you what you actually but they they're taken to the scene. Um, and they're taken to the scene by a new Metropolitan Police officer who's who takes over after 1981, who's called Sir Kenneth Newman. And Sir Kenneth Newman started his career in policing in uh, British Mandate Palestine, then um, uh, uh, kind of gained his knighthood um, in Northern Ireland, where his job was to transfer power from um, uh, the military to uh, a civilian police force in Northern Ireland. And he did that with such great success that they then asked him to, now he'd been able to effectively deal with the Irish to be brought into uh, police post 1981 London. Um, and it's here that he brought in those that kind of that colonial experience to use these kinds of counterinsurgency tactics on the British mainland, specifically against uh, Britain's black communities. And so what you see here in the 1970s and 80s is the emergence of this kind of colonial policing, not simply the kinds of material tactics, but material policies where people who are involved in colonial policing, like Sir Kenneth Newman, are brought to Britain to deal with black communities. Um, this, there were many others as well, particularly those involved in um, uh, counter-insurgency policing in Rhodesia, um, but also the identification of a suspect community, uh, black or Asian people, um, associated with specific kinds of forms of criminality or deviance, and then these, kind, these, these very um, uh, colonial policing tactics being used against these communities, both in order to repress these purportedly new uh, criminal problems, but then even more so to repress uh, the rebellions which emerged um, out of them consequently. Any questions in our final few minutes? Oh, I've got something in the chats. Sorry, uh, Lucy has asked, was there a strategic way that the idea or term of mugging became public discourse? So what I'm, so what I'm not saying, so if people want to read more about this, and I can put it in the group, um, there's a brilliant book about it called Policing the Crisis by Stuart Hall and his colleagues. Um, and they would argue, and I would say the same, but there, there wasn't some kind of government conspiracy to start 
labeling black people as, as muggers. Mugging actually arises as a purportedly, um, purported problem uh, in the United States um, in the 1960s. Before the 1970s, the word mugging doesn't exist. Um, but Britain has a um, quite a tradition of um, uh, borrowing uh, tactics um, and terms and policing tactics, not simply from its colonies, but of course from its most, uh, um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's the most, uh, its greatest colonial legacy, uh, the United States of America. And so similarly with uh, the kind of the Terrorism Act, which is not dissimilar from to the Patriot Act in the US, or the policing of gangs in Britain, which is not dissimilar from the policing of gangs in the US, in the 1970s, this idea of a mugging epidemic, which was attributed to young African-American men in the US, was then transposed to Britain um, and attributed to young uh, African-Caribbean men in its urban conurbations. Um, and both the press and the press and the police, as well as governments, all um, uh, contributed to this. Um, uh, what Stuart Hall and his colleagues call a moral panic. Um, the reason that Stuart Hall and his colleagues say that crime and criminality and racialized crime and criminality becomes such a powerful tool for the government is because um, of the crises of capitalism. Right. So there's an economic crisis in the 1970s, massive unemployment and the government isn't able to deal with this economic crisis. It's not, it's not able to provide people with the job security and the pensions and all the things that, that it needs in order to ameliorate this crisis. So what it does instead is it identifies a different crisis, tells people that that's the real crisis, and then deals with that crisis instead. So instead of dealing with the economic crisis, which leads to people yeah, being unemployed in poverty and these types of things, actually says, no, the real crisis is a crisis of law and order. It's a crisis of policing. It's a crisis of violence and criminality. And it's that crisis that's the real problem in this society. And it's that's, that is the crisis that we will deal with. And so, um, so, yeah. Any other questions in our final minute or so? I appreciate it's been a bit jam-packed and I have, obviously haven't been able to cover everything um, but um, the slides are there and the reading there's there are further readings um, and I'm more than happy to clarify if you know if you spend the next couple of days thinking to yourself oh I wonder what he meant by that or I wonder if you talk about more of that obviously we're meeting on Wednesday so we can um, I could answer any further questions um, on Wednesday when we meet again um, uh, do you all have the link to the um, uh, Google um, folder that I created. If not, let me give you all of that right away. Um, copy link, right. So you can, oh. Yes, um, so there is a Google um, uh, Drive folder. I'm going to, I've started filling it with, with articles already, which um, uh, if there's anything that's missing, please email me um, and I can add more and more and more to it. Um, um, and I'm going to, what I'm going to do after this class is create a, a um, not a doc, not a folder, but just documents where I'm just going to put URLs of like videos and podcasts as well, um, because um, just in case you're not in the mood for reading a journal article, because let's face it, that, that day will never come. Um, so, um, so yes, um, other other things as well. Any final questions? I'm happy to stay a bit afterwards. I've got, I mean, yeah, I'm happy to stay a bit later. You're all free to go. I mean, you're free to go whenever you want, but the class is officially over now. Um, but if anyone does have any further questions, I'm happy to stay a bit later and answer any questions anyone might have. Oh, sorry, the Google Drive URL, I'll post it again. 
Oh, sugar, I think I posted it as a direct message to Thomas by accident. Okay, sorry. Here it is, here it is. Okay, now everyone has it. No other questions? No? Okay, in that case, enjoy the rest of your afternoons um, and I'll see you all on Wednesday. All right, take care, everyone. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.